actually blames the labor shortage for not being able to clean the rooms. At least they say to us, oh, there's a labor shortage. We can't clean the rooms. I don't think this is a labor shortage. I think this is a wage deficit. They use the argument against us that places of higher education use, and that's the excuse that you're not workers, you're students. Well, when we're on strike, when homework isn't being graded, when exams aren't being proctored, when administrative offices are closed because they're primarily staffed by graduate workers, it becomes increasingly more ridiculous to continue saying that we're primarily students. Not only do the, the people in charge, whether it's the government, the oligarchs, the corporations, all of these people that are somehow allowed to control our lives, not only do they want to control our labor, like what we do at work, whether it's through surveillance, whether it's through laws, whether it's through intimidation, they also want to control what we do on our own time inside our own <laughs> Amazon, for example, is disproportionately employing migrants and workers without rights, workers who are dispossessed by war. This is eroding not only European economy, but society. It's an attack on the well-being of the collective. What, what happens with that is you see like you see media coverage as being this legitimizing thing. And so you're always seeking validation in the media. But then what happens is you're not really you're not really looking at like the intricacies of your overall strategy. We as federal employees do not go on strike and organizing is not nearly as dangerous, but it still comes down to the tenet that against my brothers and sisters in the workplace, I will do no harm. Honestly, for people that are trying to get into the union, I just like your reputation is everything. So don't burn bridges with people, treat people the way you want to be treated and give it your best shot. You cannot overcome wrong with wrong. You cannot change evil doing evil. You have to use justice to overcome injustice. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, Today is the annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive, organized by the National Association of Letter Carriers. You can leave a bag of non-perishable food by your mailbox, and your mail carrier will make sure it gets to your local food bank. So we'll start off today's show with a public service announcement from the letter carriers. Then we have two strike reports. Unite Here Local 6 President Carlos Aramayo talks to America's Workforce Radio about why hotel workers are on strike. And on the Working People podcast, Indiana University grad workers on why they are on strike. From Your Rights at Work, labor journalist Kim Kelly on why abortion is a labor issue and the history of the fight for women worker rights. And from WeWork Europe, a brand new member of the network, we get a look at how European workers see Amazon as a threat not just to worker rights, but to democracy itself in their countries. On Labor Wave Radio, Graham Kovich, running for the role of communications officer for the IWW, discusses media strategies for increasing union power. On the AFG Young podcast, a fascinating discussion about solidarity. Costume department member Sarush Matur talks about being a newcomer in IATSE on the Apple Box Talks podcast. And from the Rework podcast, Reverend James Lawson shares stories from his youth about his path to nonviolent resistance. As always, 
You can find all these shows and, of course, the rest of the 150 Labor Radio and Podcast shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. For the first time since 2019, the National Association of Letter Carriers is excited to hold our traditional stamp-out hunger food drive on Saturday, May 14th. While the COVID-19 pandemic caused us to cancel the last two in-person food drives, the need for food across the country remained great. NALC continued to collect monetary donations for food banks across the country through NALC's donor drive. Much of life paused or changed during the pandemic, but one thing that remained was the growing need for food assistance across the nation. Today, over 45 million Americans, including 15 million children, experience food insecurity and they rely on food donations. Please join NELC on the second Saturday in May for the 30th annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive the largest one-day food drive in the country. Participating is easy. Simply leave a bag of non-perishable food next to your mailbox on May 14th, and your letter carrier will handle the rest. Together, we can stamp out hunger in America. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. IBEW rocking the house in Chicago. And today on the show, Unite Here on the East Coast, Carlos Aramayo joining us on our live line today. He is president of Unite Here Local 26, and he's based in Boston. And um, they represent hospitality workers in the greater Boston area as well as Rhode Island. And uh, during his 18 years with the union, he has organized hotel and industrial food service workers in Connecticut, Nevada, Florida, Massachusetts, as well as Rhode Island. He's been all over the place doing a really good job. Carlos, I got to talk to you about the pandemic here. It was a tough road, and we're still far from where we were before the pandemic. I'd like you to uh, address that because you were in the middle of it all. Now we're facing a big challenge, right, which is the Our industries have reopened. It's been a big fight, uh, a big fight to get people back to work. And even in in properties where we've got the occupancy coming back to the hotels at 100 percent, you're looking at 80 percent of the staff back on. And you see attempts to cut amenities, right? Getting rid of daily room cleaning. That's something Mm -hmm. that Hilton kind of led the charge, but now all of them are trying to do it. So you're not going to get your room cleaned on a daily basis. And look, what that does is it takes our room attendants off the schedule. Like those folks can't. You know, then these folks have good jobs in Boston. Room attendant makes you know close to twenty-seven dollars an hour. They have free family medical, pension, the whole nine yards. And so the attack on daily room cleaning, the attack on the amenities, right? Trying to get rid of room service and say, hey, you can just call Uber Eats. Don't, don't. We're not going to provide room service at this hotel anymore. The introduction, especially during the pandemic. A lot of the hotel companies spent a lot of money on research and development on phone applications, which will bypass the front desk, will bypass room service order takers, will bypass bellmen. Everything you can do on your phone now. And what does that do? That cuts jobs from our membership. 
And these are good playing jobs. These are jobs largely are held by black, brown workers, the immigrant workforce in the city of Boston. Really, it's what makes that first generation of wealth for people. And I really feel like it's very cynical, but I think this industry has come out of the pandemic looking for opportunities. And we're not going to stand for it. So that's that's the current situation. And, uh, you know, we're pushing back harder. It's not just us here in Boston. Our national union is made this a major priority and we're pushing back hard on on this issue and i think one of the other things that we've seen is that a lot of times the hotel industry blames the labor shortage for not being able to clean the rooms they say to us oh there's a labor shortage we can't clean the rooms i don't think this is a labor shortage i think this is a wage deficit i think if you pay people enough money they're going to come in and clean exactly yep. <laughs> they're there they're there to oh. do it if you pay them enough money that's how this works it's just ridiculous. Our hotels are owned by hedge funds or owned by real estate investment trusts, right, which are basically these massive financial vehicles, a lot of whom I'll pick on the REITs, the real estate investment trusts. The REITs have specialized tax status where they're basically allowed to pay less taxes because they're passing on a higher percentage of their revenue to their investors. But part of that special tax status is predicated on them not engaging in the management, the daily management of the properties they own. But from the union's perspective and from our members' perspective, they are constantly seeing these owners engaged in trying to figure out how to cut shifts, how to, how to minimize you know, the impact of wage increases or increases to the cost of benefits, constantly meddling in the daily uh, activity of these properties, literally in violation of their special tax status they have through the SEC. And this kind of financial, these kind of financial institutions have seeped into every single element of American working life. And it's mm -hmm. something that I think is the labor movement we have to really, in a holistic way, because we're facing a lot of the same, across industries, we're facing a lot of the same actors. It's the same guys on Wall Street. That's yep. really what this is. So. Yeah. And it's hollowed out America, the middle class yeah. especially. Yeah. Carlos, you're an awesome guest. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. Brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and The Real News Network, produced by Jules Taylor, and made possible by the support of listeners like you. Hi, my name is Nora Weber. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate in sociology at Indiana University in Bloomington. I study education, and my role in the Indiana Grad Workers Coalition, United Electrical Workers, um, it largely involves outreach and communications. My name is Anne Cavalierczyk. I am a third-year PhD student in sociology and informatics at Indiana University. In the coalition, I'm on the coordinating committee, and I also do some stuff with our data organization. I'm incredibly grateful to Nora and Anne for making time for this because obviously they've got a lot of other shit going on. <laughs> and so again, thank you all so much for doing this. I wanted to ask if you could talk about the issues that are really central that brought you to the point of this strike. And also if you could explain a bit, because I'm sure listeners are trying to understand, they're like, wait, why are graduate workers at a public university being forced to strike for union recognition? So if you could, if you could talk a little bit about that and give folks some kind of context for the strike. Yeah. So 
the strike that's happening right now at IU is of people on SAA or student academic appointments. And this is just to say that's what our contract is called. So again, it's an employment contract with the university, but we are listed as SAAs. And this is for the classes we teach, et cetera. Right now, the people that are actively on, on the on strike from and withholding labor are people who are associate instructors, so people who teach classes, and then people who are support instructors, so grad workers that do grading and office hours and all of these other parts that if they are not the primary instructor for the course to still support and are, are critical to the course running. And we are also being supported by people who are on, on administrative SAA appointments. And those are people who work for journals on campus, who work in centers on campus, et cetera, but who, again, their work is very visible and, and critical to the day-to-day -day running of the university. In terms of the issues that brought us to the strike, last semester, we I mentioned our bargaining unit um, is about 2,500 people. Last semester, we collected over 1,600 union cards. This semester, we've collected several hundred more. So I, we have around 1,750 or so now. IU has a policy in place that, they, that is called HR 1220 which is the policy for forming an employee organization on campus, essentially a union. This policy says that an election will be triggered if that organization collects 30% 30, 30 of the bargaining unit um, has petitioned for a union election. 1,600 union cards out of 2,500 um, people, that's many, well over 30%. That's well over 60%. And IU has refused to allow us to hold a union election. So that's where, so that's how we got to this point of striking for union recognition. There are a lot of things against you to organize in a public university and also in a right to work state. But basically what we have is we have a huge number, we have mass power, we have a huge number of people in our bargaining unit. We've also built huge supports across campus, across different unions on campus, across the faculty, across the undergraduates, across staff, et cetera. And so what we're really doing is we're pushing the administration to realize that everyone wants them to recognize us as a union. They use the argument against us that places of higher education use, and that's the excuse that you're not workers, you're students. Well, when we're on strike, when we're disrupting the university, when classes aren't being held, when homework isn't being graded, when exams aren't being proctored, when students aren't getting office hours, when administrative offices are closed because they're primarily staffed by graduate workers, it becomes increasingly more ridiculous to continue saying that we're primarily students. And so that's a little bit of the brief history of why we're striking for union recognition in a public university. Welcome back to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here with you. Ed Smith is away this week. He's back at the negotiating table. I'm sure we'll hear all about that next week. But uh, Mike Nacello is on the board. You've got questions. You want to join the conversation, give us a call, 202-588-0893. This is your show, folks. If you've got questions about your rights on the jobs, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, give us a call, 202 588 Nine, three. Your Right to Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's more than 150 Labor Radio podcast shows just like this. You can check them out, laborradionetwork.com. 
Org. Our, our next uh, guest for our final segment, Kim Kelly. She's been on the show before. Her signature line says, uh, journalist, author, troublemaker. I think that last one is maybe uh, the most important one, certainly for us here on Your Rights to Work. She's got a new book, her first book. She's been writing forever, but uh, got a book out, Fight Like Hell, The Untold Story of American Labor. Tells the story of how low-wage and marginalized workers beat the odds, organized, and won some justice on the job. Kim Kelly, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Thanks so much for having me. It's always oh, a pleasure. It's our pleasure entirely. I know you've just been, I've seen you everywhere. You're, you're just, <laughs> <laughs> they've really got you working hard, don't they? It's like a second job. But I mean, I'm so thrilled that people want to talk to me about this book. and want to talk about labor. Like it is such a, 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 not to be a sad, but it's such an honor to be able to be talking about this stuff and helping get people excited and and being a little bit like tiny part of this moment where people are so interested and enthusiastic about the labor movement in a way that I haven't seen before. And I mean, maybe you've seen dips and lulls throughout, you know, throughout your life in labor, but to me, it feels like this is a really exciting moment. Before we get to your book, you put a, a fabulous, fabulous piece uh, the other day on In These Times, Abortion Rights or Workers' Rights, um, pointing out that the Supreme Court's plan to strike down reproductive freedom is an attack on workers everywhere. We here on this show have really been trying to make that connection for folks. Um, and, and you talked about how the labor movement needs to treat it that way by taking urgent actions. I, I could feel the anger, you know, through, through your, I could feel you sort of trying to just put the words down there, but it really, it really, you were, you, you were, and I assume are mad. I'm, I, oh, <laughs> it's, it's like, like I see in the piece and like, I think it's just a very basic aspect of everything. Like not only do the, the people in charge, whether it's the government, the oligarchs, the corporations, all of these people that are somehow allowed to control our lives, not only do they want to control our labor, like what we do at work, whether it's through surveillance, whether it's through laws, whether it's through intimidation, they also want to control what we do on our own time inside our own like like it's it's, I thought that we were past this particular hurdle you know I thought that you know I don't know what I thought I thought I wouldn't have to worry about whether I had a passport or not right now and I didn't and and it's just it's just a really dark and horrible moment for so many people in this country women anybody with a uterus who are being told very clearly that we don't see you as human beings deserving of agency. We see you as either broodmares or robots who will continue creating profit for us and continue increasing our stores of capital and both. It's like this country is incredibly inhospitable to pregnant people and pregnant workers specifically. Like it is very expensive, very dangerous to be pregnant in this country if you don't have a ton of money. And especially if you're black, especially if you're indigenous, especially if you're from another marginalized group, like the these people who rule over us are asking too much. They've already taken as everything that we can imagine. And now they're trying to take, you know, our right to choose how we live our lives. It's just it's infuriating. And I think that something that I didn't, I didn't necessarily say in the piece because I don't want to get in trouble, but I do, (laughs) I do think that, and I know there are a lot of people much smarter than me in the labor movement who would tell me like, oh, this is impossible. It's a stupid idea, but I'm not mad that I'm seeing little whispers of people thinking about the idea of a general strike or a big strike or a big action. And even I was tweeting about the other day, it was like in a perfect world where unions were, were a monolith and did agree politically, like, 
imagine if all the transport workers in the country said, okay, we're not going in until you codify this, until this, this, you know, the right to bodily autonomy is actually enshrined in law in a way that people can't screw with it. Like we, the workers control so much and have so much power in this country. And if we chose to wield it in a variety of ways, like we could get stuff done. It's just, there's so many obstacles in the way, like Taft-Hartley alone. Uh, if I don't, I don't think that we'll see a general strike for abortion rights, but if we did, I would be right there in front. I'd be pretty excited about it. <laughs> you were talking with Kim Kelly. She's got a brand new book out, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. And what you just said segues perfectly into your book because, you know, I know because we've been corresponding uh, over the last year, really. And I know it, it's, it's been interesting because you've been you're very much you're, you're on the picket lines, you're on the rally lines. You're out there covering these issues as a working journalist, um, but then you've also been doing this deep dive into our history, right? Yeah, so many of the same issues that people were fighting for back in the day are still <laughs> a problem. I mean, the fact that the, say, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, 1824, when a group of young women and girls led the nation's first factory strike, they were trying to get better work hours and better working conditions and they were breathing in dust and they were being sexually harassed by their managers. The same things are happening with garment workers in Los Angeles right now who are now predominantly Asian and Latino immigrant women. They're fighting for the same things like 200 and some years, like almost like a really long time later. Like history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, you know, perfectly, but it does rhyme. And there are so many issues that people, perhaps it would be easier if they thought they were left in the past. Like, oh, we fixed that. We're done with that. We've moved on. But clearly, whether it's, you know, the right to bodily autonomy or the idea of slavery, like ask somebody incarcerated in one of this nation's massive federal prisons how they feel about working without being compensated for their labor. You know, it's history is complicated and it's not done. Nothing is finished. We're not we're not done cooking any of this. And I think it's really important to draw those distinctions and draw those parallels and show that, like, not only have people been fighting for the same things for a very long time, they haven't always won. But they, but every time that someone has chosen to enter that struggle, they've added another piece to that chain. They've added another lesson to the the playbook. Like, it's all mattered. It's all been important, even if you don't win the first time. Someone ten years, twenty years, two hundred years later they're going to win because of what you did. And I think that's important to remember, like none of us are doing this alone. We're all standing on the shoulders of the people that came before. We're out of time, Kim Kelly. Thanks so much for being on your right to work. We'll have you back soon. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to your rights to work folks. We'll see you next week. Hi there. And welcome to this episode of We Work Europe, the podcast from ESA, the European Centre for Workers' Questions. In this episode, we'll talk to several experts from the ESA network and scientists from the US about the Amazon system, which is posing a threat to workers' rights, not just in the European Union, but right across the world. Norbert Faltin remembers one day when Amazon employees in Germany collectively went on strike. The management ordered that temporary workers be brought in, but the problem was that any new employees had to be approved by the Works Council before starting work. 
Norbert Faltine called the police to prevent the company from doing something illegal, with the consequence that the temporary workers got contracts with Amazon. The striking workers gained nothing. Together with Ellen Rees, Jake Ali Mohammed Wilson is co-editor of the book The Cost of Free Shipping and professor of sociology at California State University, Long Beach. He sees a threat to democracy if more businesses take up Amazon's model because it is a top-down structure with a lot of employees being silenced or replaced if they do not toe the line. Most of the workers don't see the company's profit reflected in their paychecks, while a few people in top management get richer and richer. Collective bargaining could be an option, not only for saving employees from precarious situations, but also as a sign of participation. It is absolutely connected to this neoliberal attack on democratic institutions. Collective bargaining is more than just the relationship between workers and the bosses or the owners. It's the direct connection to democracy in the economy. And if that is jeopardized, uh, we're in trouble. In May 2021, the European Parliament's Committee on Employment and Social Affairs held a hearing titled Amazon's Attacks on Fundamental Workers' Rights and Freedom. The company was accused of violating European work and privacy laws. The hearing was attended by people from politics, science, labour unions, but Amazon, as the accused, failed to appear. Amazon's constant lack of responsibility is a problem for the European Union. The EU stands for values that it wishes to see reflected in the economy. It uses social dialogue to this end as an instrument to bring employers, employees and social partners together to talk about working conditions. Jake Ali Mohammed Wilson is not surprised that Amazon does not want to participate in that. It benefits from having as little regulation as possible. But the time has come to do something about it. The EU is going to have to flex its muscles, have some severe uh, repercussions for this anti-democratic corporate behavior. There needs to be a global commission. Amazon has tended to go to various countries and find out the local and regional laws that they can you know, skirt or get away with. Um, I think there needs to be more coordination globally. And I think the EU could be a space that needs to you know, have a tribunal where workers and affected communities get to testify how Amazon, for example, is disproportionately employing migrants and workers without rights, workers who are dispossessed by war. This is eroding not only European economy, but society. It's an attack on the well-being of the collective. If you like We Work Europe, do give us a five-star rating and don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you have any interesting topics or feedback for us, just contact isa at isa.org. We Work Europe is the podcast from ESA, the European Centre for Workers' Questions, which receives financial support from the European Union. This podcast was narrated by me, Rebecca Sharp. Script and production by Escucha, Audio Identity.
Graham Kovich. Welcome back to Labor Wave Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. So last time we talked, we were talking about Beauty and the Beast and organizing <laughs> yeah. servant class in the fictional world. This time we're going to be a little bit more grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. There is an upcoming election at the time of this recording in the IWW for the communications officer title. And you are one of the candidates in the running for that position. So we wanted to just talk about the utility of communications, like what strategy can help like improve a union's prospects for organizing victories versus strategies that can weaken them. And just have like a more of a conversation about, you know, communications technologies in general and like what we're really trying to accomplish with any kind of media strategies um, or communication strategies. I think trying to like, trying to keep up with like the, you know, the 24 seven news cycle and big headlines and stuff like that. I think the downside of that is then we get end up trying to produce more headlines. Right. And, you know, I've, I've been in the non, I've worked in nonprofits uh, as like a, a staff organizer before and like earned media is one of the big things that they always talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what happens with that is you see like, you see media coverage as being this legitimizing thing. And so you're always seeking validation in the media, but then what happens is you're not really, you're not really looking at like the intricacies of your overall strategy. You're not looking for, you know, any sort of holes or setbacks that you might have because the media is covering you and you figure if, if the public's on our side, then that'll all get sorted out. And then you come up against some obstacle where public support really doesn't make a difference. And then you're just caught off guard. You don't know what to do. Yeah, I think actually a really uh, stark example of this is at the time of this recording, we're on the wave of the Amazon elections that just happened Mm -hmm. in Staten Island and in Bessemer, Alabama. And though I can't claim that I have a ton of knowledge about the Amazon labor union and how they went about organizing uh, it did, to me, come across as a very, very different approach to organizing than the RWDSU in last year's Bessemer election. So, you know, the RWDSU last year, when they were like gearing up towards like having an election at Amazon, I felt, you know, labor Twitter is very small. Even though it feels very big, it's actually not that many people. Um, mm-hmm. But like on my Twitter feed every day, I was like the fucking Super Bowl. Like, my God, <laughs> the thing is going to, it's about to kick off. They had like, they clearly were obsessed with media attention. They yeah. had all of these articles, constant updates, the NFL Players Union giving endorsements, Bernie talking about it a lot. I like Bernie, but like he's always going to give, you know, <laughs> endorsements mm-hmm. to any union campaign. But anyway, it was like nonstop media cycle. And it it did seem to me to actually even break the echo chamber of labor Twitter and actually like go beyond that a little bit. But at the end of the day, when they had their election, they got fucking trounced. Like they lost big time. Yeah. So clearly that media driven strategy. And it seemed to me like they believed that, like you're saying, media was a legitimizing force. The more you have supporters, the more you're going to like have the opportunity to leverage victories. It clearly didn't make a, a dent in the margin of votes there. Yeah. But then, you know, fast forward to this year, the Amazon labor union, it's not like they're media shy exactly, but they have like social media and things. But to be quite honest, like I'm very plugged into the labor uh, news cycle. 
And I hardly ever heard about them leading up to this vote. Like it was just not an article that was coming out every single month or week or anything. The Starbucks campaign realistically is taking up all the headlines. So it's almost like it kind of flew under the radar. And a lot of what they did was like an internal focus strategy of like constant barbecues, building up like an independent union infrastructure. Um, And they won, you know, Mm -hmm. with like a much less like outward focused strategy, more of like a kind of locally focused strategy. RWDSU also had a repeat election and it looks like they probably lost. It's like, you know, there's challenge ballots and things at the time of this recording. But I will say that even in the second round, the margin of defeat uh, shrunk for RWDSU. But I think in the second round, they also kind of like backed off of being so media obsessed. So anyway, I just think that this is like a really good example of like how the limits of being like outwardly focused and trying to get clicks and headlines like you're talking about versus something that was clearly more intentional towards the rank and file and like member to member communications. Thanks for joining us again on Labor Wave Radio. Good luck in the election. And hopefully we'll have you back on the show again soon. Thanks, Alex. Hello. And welcome to the AFGE Young Podcast. My name is Andre Cunningham, and I am your host for today. I am joined by Vanessa Barrow, AFGE District 2 National Fair Practices Affirmative Action Coordinator, Jennifer Dickerson, AFGE District 2 Young Coordinator, Jake Baker, AFGE District 4 National Fair Practices Affirmative Action Coordinator, and Candace Foster, AFGE District 7 Young Coordinator. And today, we're at the annual HRC slash Young Meeting in Baltimore, Maryland, and we are in person doing a roundtable discussion about building AFGE solidarity. How would you define solidarity within any given movement? And Jake, we'll start with you. Um, hmm. Well, thank you, Andre. Um, Solidarity is a concept that came to my attention back in 89 when Lech Walesa led the pro-democratic movement in Poland. I had just gotten out of the Army and was beginning my career at Fort Bragg as an Army civilian. It next hit my radar when I became an activist with the labor movement. This concept of solidarity is a commitment to stand with each other, even in the face of adversity. Back in the early days of the labor movement, it meant that those signs carried on the picket line were on an axe handle to conveniently take care of scabs who would try to cross it. Dark days in Kentucky and West Virginia, when trying to organize, you could get you incarcerated and possibly killed. Solidarity is a vital and sometimes life-saving thing. Now, we as federal employees do not go on strike, and organizing is not nearly as dangerous, but it still comes down to the tenant that against my brothers and sisters in the workplace, I will do no harm. Vanessa, can you give me an example of someone showing solidarity that you witnessed that was eye-opening or pivotal to you? So the example I'm going to use is actually not anything to do with AFGE. It has to go do with my mom's union experience. So as I said earlier, she's a member of um, 1199. So that's like the hospital workers union. So I remember there was an issue, you know, contract negotiations, you know, the hospital wasn't doing right. 
So it only affected certain employees. I guess this is I'm gonna how to bridge in the solidarity. So it only affected certain employees that went on strike. So the employees that went on strike would have been the LPNs, the nursing assistants, and the um, the maintenance workers. So they went on strike. Obviously, when you go on strike, you're not getting paid for all the days that you're out on strike. And one of the RNs, who you know was not affected by the strike, she would come outside and bring you know you know food for them to eat you know during the strike time, bring water because it happened in the summertime and it was really really hot out there. And then I remember one time, and this is how you know it really touched me to show that you know she was really looking out for her fellow co-workers. You know, my mom was a single mom and she knew that, you know, it's, it really takes a lot for a single mother to go out on strike and not get paid. So what she did was one day she came over with a bag of groceries for us and said, you know, this is for you guys. You know, I know it's not much, but this is the best I can do. But for my mom, it, it was, it was, what she did was just so amazing. Thank you for listening to the AFGE Young Podcast. New episodes are made available every two weeks and are streamed anywhere you listen to your podcasts. This podcast is a production of the AFGE National Young Committee, BUG, Bridging Union Gaps Initiative. To learn more about the AFGE Young Program, visit our website at www.afge.org young or our Facebook page by searching at Young AFGE. Welcome to Apple Box Talks. I'm Crystal. And I'm Hillary. Taking the Apple Box this week is a CAFTCAD nominated, newly initiated member to 891 who already has a number of impressive credits to their names, such as Hecademia, Poison Love, and Turner and Hooch. Today we welcome costume designer Sarush Matur. So pull up an Apple Box and let's talk. Welcome, Sarush. Hi, thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Thanks for coming today. So you're one of our newly initiated members. I think you get the credit of the first newbie in the chair. Ooh, feels good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just got uh, my membership in Christmas time last year. Well, just January last year. Right in the middle of the pandemic? That's right. Yeah, it was a Zoom initiation and it was great. As a newcomer, often the union gets criticized kind of as a big impenetrable fortress Mm -hmm. that new people are trying to get into. Now that you're in, how do you, um, what are your hopes for the future of the union and how we can stay relevant in this changing world? Well, I mean, I love that it's, that there is a lot of different representation. There's people that have been in the union for a long time. And then there's a lot of new people in the union now too, bringing fresh young energy, um, which is great. It's also super important to have these veterans of the union so that we can learn from them. Um, but my experience honestly has been, you know, the teams that I've worked with, I was a little intimidated at first, to be honest, working on these big union shows, Everyone's so professional and, you know, it's very different than the non-union world. 
Um, but I've been lucky to work with some really great people that are super friendly and a, a joy to work with most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, honestly, for people that are trying to get into the union, I just like your reputation is everything. So don't burn bridges with people, um, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated and give it your best shot. And if people see that you work hard and that, but you're fun to be around and you bring good energy to the team, then they're going to call you and they're going to ask you to come back. So, so that's, you know, the first impression is the most important one. You know what I love about just listening to you and your answers and, and your stage of, of, of your career, um, is there so much passion and vibrancy and potentiality and, you know, thinking about a diversity and equity and thinking about sustainability and you have, you have that lens already. And I can only hope that that is something that, you know, everyone coming in and even those of us who have been in a long time can really gravitate towards. So Really appreciate your perspective today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you, Hillary, for having me. Thank you. It's been great. <laughs> I would insist that every human being has the power of life, the power of the universe in them, and that if they tap that power and learn about it, understand it, live in it, they will see nonviolence as a great force for personal and social change, for overcoming evil, for stopping the economic disparities of our society, for breaking up and dismantling the structures and the ideologies of racism and sexism and violence. It's one of the great interventions of the 20th century, in my mind, equal to Albert Einstein's equations on relativity. From the UCLA Labor Center, we bring you free work. I'm Sabah Wahid. And I'm Dina Hampapur. We're celebrating over here at the UCLA Labor Center because we received an allocation from the California State Legislature to renovate our building and establish a permanent home for ourselves. When I thought about coming and working for the Labor Center, it was because of the downstairs space. I could feel the centering of community in that space, the strategies that were built in that space, the workers coming together, the press conferences, the parties. This is before my time, but I heard someone even got married at the labor center. I crashed that wedding. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, the UCLA Labor Center is located next to downtown LA. We're walking distance from all of our many partners in the labor movement, in the immigrant rights world. Not only are we establishing a permanent home in MacArthur Park, we're renaming our building in honor of a famed civil and worker rights leader, Reverend James Lawson Jr. Reverend Lawson worked closely with Dr. King, who called him the greatest teacher of nonviolence in America. He was a leader in the civil rights movements dating back to the 1960s. Since 1974, 
He's been here in Los Angeles for the next 47 years. Reverend Lawson will continue to be involved in the labor movement and really seeing the bridges and the need for collaborations amongst all these different movements. Yeah, and on top of that, for about the last two decades, Reverend Lawson has been teaching a class on nonviolence and social movements at UCLA, sharing his wisdom with our labor studies students. And in 2018, he received the UCLA Medal, which is the university's highest honor. He was also inducted into the California Hall of Fame in 2019. And of course, we have our building. It will be the first structure in the United States to bear his name. So when Reverend Lawson was asked about our building being named after him, he pointed out that he had actually been arrested more times for his work in labor than in all his years of working in the civil rights movement. That's so amazing. <laughs> so awesome. Who is James Lawson Jr.? We're going to let Reverend Lawson tell you that himself, sharing excerpts from his course on nonviolence that he teaches with our director, Kent Wong. And if you've never heard him speak... Reverend Lawson is a storyteller at heart. This episode is part one in our mini-series on Reverend Lawson's life and teachings. The notion of wrestling against social evil through the lens of love became something that was at the very core of my life early on. At age seven or eight, it was springtime in Maslin. My mother sends me on an errand after school up the street where I'm accosted again with a racist epithet. This time again, I went over and struck the boy. When I returned home from that errand, for the first time I can remember, told my mother about it. I'd never mentioned these racist incidents to either mother or father before then. My mother, without turning to me at all, continuing to work at the stove where she was obviously preparing our evening meal, she said quietly to me, Jimmy, what good did that do? And I'll never, I'll never forget that question. Jimmy, what good did that do? And she launched into a long soliloquy about who we were and who I was and about Jesus as an example of life and about love and truth and said slapping the person did not really effect any change. It only multiplied the problem. And then I'll never forget as she finished that soliloquy, she said, Jimmy, there must be a better way. She said, there must be a better way and I recognized that in my own life, she was saying, you have to get into the business of finding that better way. And she was saying to me, this should become a part of the thing that you will do as a black boy in Massillon, Ohio. It's in that experience then that I determined I would never again fight with my fists. I would never allow anger or fear to cause me to hit another person. So we see that Reverend Lawson developed this moral code at a very young age. But what happens to that as he gets older? I see those experiences in my childhood as a direct path towards discovering Gandhi. 
I tried to find every book I could in the college library on Gandhi and read them in 47, 48, 49. And that's when I came to see nonviolence, which I prefer to call very many times soul force, <laughs> life force. Love force. <laughs> I would define nonviolence as the practice of the energy of love, even in times of conflict and disagreement, even in the midst of violence and turmoil and fear that comes from violence. Nonviolence offers us the power and the tactics by which we can overcome the violence, the militarization of our world, and therefore the injustice of the world. It is a science. Gandhi said you have to be a person of faith to do nonviolence, and all the world's great religions insist that compassion and truth and wonder and beauty are a part of the road you take to overcome wrong. You cannot overcome wrong with wrong. You cannot change evil doing evil. The world's finest poetic philosophical writings all have in them the sensibility that you have to use justice to overcome injustice. You're listening to Rework, a project of the UCLA Labor Center. Thanks to Reverend Lawson, Kent Wong, and the Labor Studies Program at UCLA. To watch Reverend Lawson's Nonviolence and Social Movements course, visit bit.ly slash UCLA Lawson. This episode was produced by Veena Hampapur and Sabah Wahid. Sound design and editing by Veena Hampapur. Mixing by Aaron Dalton. Until next time, rethink, rework. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. One could say that brewing beer is important to the identity of the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Even the city's baseball team goes by the name The Brewers. And so, on this day in labor history, the year was 1953. The beer brewers in Milwaukee walked off the job in what came to be a 10-week strike. Brewers from some of the nation's best-known breweries participated in the strike, including Schlitz, Pabst, Miller, and Blatz. The year before the strike, Schlitz set a world record by producing producing more than six and a half million barrels of beer. The strikers were members of the United Brewery Workers Union Local Number 9, part of the CIO. One of the main issues of the strike was that the brewers in the Midwest were typically paid lower wages than those on the West and East Coasts. The Milwaukee brewers wanted their work to be rewarded with similar wages. The workers won the strike when Blatz agreed to their demands. 
the rest of the Milwaukee Brewing Company's ousted Blatt's from the Brewers Association as a result. The Blatt's Brewing Company had been brewing beer in Milwaukee since before the Civil War and had produced the city's first individually bottled beer. But the other brewers were so angry about Blatt's giving in to its workers, they cited unethical business models and kicked them out of their association. Due to the work stoppage, Anheuser-Busch out of St. Louis took over the top spot in beer brewing in 1953. The next year at the company's Christmas party, the president of Schlitz claimed irreparable harm was done to the Milwaukee brewing industry during the 76-day strike of 1953. The next time you have a cold one, take a moment and raise your glass and remember the brewers who made that drink possible. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us, please do, on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Music.